Do you want to sharpen your skills as a writer or wish you knew a better way to approach your story? Welcome to The Author's Journey, a book club for writers. Join us each week as we read books on writing by the world's best storytellers so you can master your craft and achieve more. And now, here's your host, Jason Hamilton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Author's Journey. Today, we are going back into Million Dollar Outlines by David Farland and looking specifically at Section 3, where we will be covering the inciting incident all the way through to writing a million-dollar outline. Now, the inciting incident is, of course, something we've probably all heard about, especially if you've been an author for a little while. It is that, as he puts it, the major incident that occurs which lets us know a story has begun and our character has a problem to resolve. And, of course, we see this in virtually everything, right? But it's not at the beginning of the story, necessarily. And that's why I didn't talk about it last week, is because it's not necessarily part of the beginning. It's more the beginning of the second part, the middle, which is what we're talking about today. We're talking about middles and ends. And he's got a lot of great material here that I thought was really useful and really helpful in for me to try and plot my own stories. So let's dive right into it. So uh, getting back to the inciting incident, this is, of course, uh, in virtually every story, inciting incidents range depending on what kind of story you're telling. It can be as much as the heroine meeting the love interest in a romance, or it can be something earth shatteringly huge like you would find in an epic fantasy, something like that. But One of the interesting things that he has here is that you should have your characters make their own problems. Now, this isn't necessarily going to be the case for the inciting incident. It could be a case for some of the problems, the conflicts that we see leading up to the inciting incident. But I do like the point he makes here is he gives an example of a man standing outside and it gets hit by a falling branch. All right. Yeah, that's a problem. That could be an inciting incident. But what if instead the man was sitting in a tree sawing off the limb upon which he was sitting? Suddenly that becomes a more, far more interesting problem to have because this guy is either suicidal or he's very dumb or he's just extremely distracted by other problems in his life. And I like that. It suggests at a more internal conflict, which is something he points out here, and secondary problems. Now, Very often, especially in plot-driven novels, the inciting incident will not be something that has anything to do with the main character, at least not something that the main character creates, right? So you might have a villain, and the villain is the one creating these problems. That can also be interesting, and it's one of the reasons, I think, why villains are so interesting to a lot of people can often be they can often overshadow the protagonist is because they have this proactive nature they're the ones creating the problems but he says in short the least interesting of all conflicts tend to be man versus nature with no human agency involved and for the most part, I agree with that. I'd say most of the good conflicts are created by a person. And certainly the example he gives here of the branch falling on the person's head, that is certainly less interesting 
than if he broke the branch himself while he was on it or someone dropped the branch onto his head. Any of these human interactive methods of producing the inciting incident. There are, of course, plenty of man versus nature stories out there that do quite well. A lot of survival stories, everything from Call of the Wild to The Walking Dead, maybe. But The Walking Dead is a very interesting example because I realized as I was thinking about it that The Walking Dead isn't really about man versus nature. The nature part of it being the zombies. The zombies essentially act as a force of nature in The Walking Dead. But the zombies really have nothing to do with the main conflicts in the story. All they do is set up the backdrop that explains why humans are in the situation that they're in. But the real conflict of The Walking Dead comes from man versus man. And they do a wonderful job at creating some horrific conflicts in that show. And I've talked about The Walking Dead before. I think it has certain problems in other areas, but it's certainly not in its conflict. Absolutely not. He talks a little bit about bridging conflicts, which we talked a little bit about last week. This is that idea of how do you have conflict? How do you have a story at all before you're inciting incident? There are a couple of good examples of stories that have the inciting incident immediately, like on the first page, but that's kind of rare. Usually it takes a little while to get into it, like 5 to 10% of the novel. So how do you do that? Basically, the answer is that you give the characters other conflicts that might not be directly related to the plot of your novel, but might showcase inner conflicts. They might showcase flaws, weaknesses, or strengths that our characters have that will be pertinent to the story later on. And that's a great way to do it. But the the point is you still need conflict at the beginning of your story, even before your inciting incident, your main conflict is introduced. So let's get into the meat of this uh, of today's reading with story middles. He says, it has been said that there are three keys to creating great plots. Escalate, escalate, escalate. And I think back again, I'm going to mention Brandon Sanderson a lot, but I I think back to his lectures where he talks about one of the great things that you want to get a sense of in your novel is progress. And having escalation is a great way to showcase progress of some kind because you're building on what came before. But first, we also have to talk again and just mention rooting interest because If you are not interested in your protagonist or the situation that your protagonist is in, we will, of course, not care that the story is escalating because we don't care about the 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 reason for the escalation to happen in the first place. He says your reader will only care about your story so long as he or she has rooting interest in your characters. And we kind of talked about this in some of the past weeks, but let's just review some of that a little bit. He says, we tend to root for characters who are perfectly fit for their role in life. In other words, they're kind of competent at what they do. Competence is another thing that Brandon Sanderson brings up a lot as a way to make characters likable. It doesn't have to be competence in anything huge, and they can certainly be incompetent in a lot of other areas, but showcasing that they're competent in their own little corner of life is one great way to produce interest in that character. And just as we can escalate things in the story, we can also escalate how the rooting interest can build, you know, because as your character grows, we might be able to have scenes where the character does something that makes us 
more interested in them and that's a great way to build on the story but he says let your character grow into the role of being the hero of his or her own story so let so find ways that you can make your hero likable throughout the story find ways to make them fit and likewise with the protect with the antagonist the villain the opposite is true you can have them sink to lower and lower levels as you go along the point is that you want to have a character who is likable and who your character who your reader will be interested in knowing what their story is all right so let's get to that escalation factor One of the things he says here that I like is that you can't escalate the tension in your story if there isn't any to start with. And this section is called Actions Speak Louder Than Thoughts. And he gives some great examples of how this works. In a nutshell, he says, thinking about a problem is weaker than talking about it, and talking is weaker than taking action. And we talked about this earlier in a previous episode about when you open a story with a character thinking about the problem that they've got or just thinking in general, which is kind of a common way to start for a lot of amateur writers. That's not really a great way to start because it's not conflict, or at least it's not effective conflict because they're not talking about it. They're not doing something about it. And the example he gives here is say you open with a guy who really needs money. And so he says, okay, I'm going to empty out my retirement savings. All right, fine. That's just something he's thinking about. But what really is the conflict there? there? There is conflict, right? It's this feeling that he needs money, so he's going to empty his retirement. That creates financial conflict. But there are definitely better ways to do that. So the next example is, you know, talking is better than thinking. So We have a scene where he goes to his wife and says, I'm going to empty our retirement savings right away. Big conflict, right? You could escalate that even further and have his wife answer, oh, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. I already emptied the savings and I spent it all on whatever. More conflict, right? This is certainly better than him just thinking about emptying his savings. But we can step it up from there, right? So in his example, he says you can start out with the character arguing with his wife about finances. You can start your story with him going to empty out his retirement account at the bank, demanding all whatever the amount is, only to have the teller say, I'm sorry, sir, but your wife drained the last of this account on Monday. So here we have a conflict where he's doing something, he's proactive, and then he runs into a roadblock. And this is much more effective than just talking about it, much more effective than thinking about it, especially when you realize that his wife has already taken it out and therefore we also have a mystery involved here. Much more effective. So this is something to keep in mind, especially as you're starting out your story, but certainly throughout the whole book, you should be thinking about how to show rather than tell, right? This is a good example of show versus tell, not on a paragraph level, but on a scene level. That's better for the characters to be doing something that we can then observe rather for them to just be telling us through their thoughts. All right, so how do we make problems more progressively difficult? He has a section on this, and I'm just going to read the first paragraph here. He says, as you move from your first try-fail cycle to your second, from your second to your third, and so forth, you must realize that your character's steps to resolve the problem should be progressively more difficult. By that I mean that each attempt to resolve the problem should require greater effort and resources from your hero, and each attempt should also require you as an author to spend more time creating the scenes than the previous attempt. This is something I hadn't really thought of before. I'm familiar with Dave's concept of the try-fail cycles, but 
I like that he mentions here that you should spend more time with each try-fail cycle. And this is something I haven't really considered. He gives some examples here of how you might do this in a mystery. And one of the things he says is that you might spend 100 pages on just the first try-fail cycle. And then the second would be 150 pages. I hadn't really thought of his try-fail cycles as being that long, right? I thought of them more as events like, okay, we're going to try this. Oh, it didn't work. But really, it's everything leading up to that. It's a much more involved process. There's preparation. There's action. There's all kinds of of things while the character is trying to resolve this problem. So it's not just a one and done. Okay, didn't work. And so I like that. I like that we can really spend our time with each of these try-fail cycles to make them authentic. And then spend more time with each subsequent try-fail cycle. That's one way to make it progress, right? As long as the actual story of that try-fail cycle is also progressing. Now, how do we do that? He has a section here called Deepen and Broaden Your Tale. These are ways to make each try-fail cycle a little bit more intense and to escalate each one. So to deepen a conflict, he says a conflict that deepens is one that becomes more personal to your protagonist, one that strikes closer to home. The example he gives here, continuing with his mystery example, is that you might have your main character is a detective and you have a serial killer running around killing young girls. And then he finds out that he's killing young girls with mental disabilities. And it so happens that his daughter is a girl with a mental disability. And so that deepens the tale because suddenly it has become much more personal for him. You could also have at this point of the story, after the first try-fail cycle, the villain might take a stronger interest in the protagonist. And so in the second try-fail cycle, he's making it harder for that protagonist personally. It's another way to do it. So that's deepening. You can also broaden the story. And he says, a conflict that broadens is one that begins to touch more and more lives as a story grows. So think of like an epic fantasy where it just gets worse and worse and worse for virtually like entire civilizations and very often the entire world, the entire universe is in jeopardy. We see this a lot in superhero films, right? Where it might start off as a little thing, or at least it appears as a little thing, and then you realize that, oh, if we don't stop this, the entire multiverse explodes, right? So that's another way to broaden the tale. Now, that can, of course, get out of hand, and it depends on the genre, how, do you, how you do that. But that's another way to do it. But he says, in other words, with each major attempt at resolving this conflict, our protagonist must devote more effort and resources towards fixing the problem because it's either more personal or the problem's just bigger, right? And I noticed one thing, one of the things that I noticed before we get into endings, I'm just going to talk about this a little bit. There are a lot of movies out there where you get to some huge big ending, right? And you have a try the third try-fail cycle and it seems to work. The huge mega world ending threat is eliminated, the villain is defeated, and everything seems, you know, like sunshine and daisies. But then there's usually kind of a a secondary climax where we find out that the villain, now all just defeated and disgraced, goes and finds a way to personally attack the hero. And this is a conflict that in essence seems less of a conflict than the one that was just resolved because it's smaller in scale. So we're going back on that broadening idea. But it definitely goes with the 
the deeper conflict. We've definitely deepened the conflict because the 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 villain is now on a vendetta to personally hurt the hero. And I think we see this quite a lot in a lot of different stories where the hero where the villain just starts taking a personal grudge against the hero and then the hero has to save one person perhaps like the someone they love as opposed to the whole world, right? Just an observation. I think that the deeper you go is probably more effective than the broader you go because we will often see that deeper conflict come up after the broader conflict has been resolved. Just an interesting observation. All right, moving to the next section, we're going to talk about endings. One of the things he talks about is Andre Norton, who, if you don't know, is a famous science fiction fantasy author and was once a judge for the Writers of the Future contest, which Dave Farland is now a judge on. And he said she was a wonderful person, but she and I, just quoting here, she and I had some fundamental differences of opinion about what should happen at the end of the story. This made me raise an eyebrow because I would be very careful if I had a difference of opinion with Andre Norton. But he does mention that there is an old school of thought about how to create an ending, right? And this is what Andre Norton believed, is that for any story to have a satisfying ending, the protagonist of the story must end up in a better, happier state than he or she began the story in. And his opinion was that for him, he there are a lot of movies that have hit him the hardest on an emotional level, and they did not end that way. And honestly, I would agree. Um, I'd say it depends on your genre, it depends on what you're trying to do. For instance, if you have a romance book, romance is notorious for having the happy ending. And if you go against that, your readers will be insanely furious with you because that is just not what you do with a romance book. If you have a romance with a sad ending, most people will tell you that is not a romance book. It is a book in another genre that has romance in it. But if it does not have a happy ending then that would not be something you would want to categorize as a romance book. Otherwise, uh, your readers will eat you alive. That's one example. I think there are a lot of cases where you're expecting things to get better, or at least if they do get worse, it's a temporary thing. There are, of course, genres that are very effective at not getting better. Probably horror is one of the genres that does this the most. But there's certainly a lot of tragedies out there. Some of the best stories in the world, you know, you look at Shakespeare, have been tragedies. So I would definitely agree that it doesn't have to be that the protagonist should end up in a better, happier state. Though it can happen, and often does. But what he says, a ending boils down to, is that a seri- it's simply a series of conflict resolutions. So let's talk about different ways that you can have a conflict resolution. He gives three different big ones. Either your character may affect change. So the, this is probably common in most plot-driven stories. Your character does something that resolves the plot, makes things better or worse for the general public at large. Or your character may change as a result of conflict. And I see we, I think we see this one a lot as well, that the character goes through some kind of growth cycle or negative growth cycle. But very often that's what a character arc is, is that they've grown in some way throughout the course of the story. And third, your audience can be changed by the story. And he spends some time talking about this, but you can have some stories that can really hammer home certain lessons, I guess. And he gives an example of 
a roommate he had in college who was very, shall we say, not very tolerant of people who were disabled or impaired. But then he saw the film The Elephant Man and it completely changed things around. And that's one example of how it can how it can do that. Now, there are a lot of movies that do this. And I think these are the kinds that you would maybe hear about more at a place like the Oscars. You don't hear about it as much with some of the big budget fantastical movies out there. And I think the same goes for books. But at the same time, while it might be a little bit different, I think some of these movies, the the bigger budget, more uh, popular storytelling can definitely have a change on the world. For instance, the Harry Potter books made reading cool again for younger people and that's just one example now it's not the kind where like you read it and suddenly your life has changed right but as a whole the harry potter books created this positive change in that more people were reading you know i consider that a win and for me i'd say a a popular story that has changed my life has been the original star wars trilogy which remains one of my favorite stories to this day I'm still very much a Star Wars fan. And I think for one of the reasons for that is, you know, I identified with Luke Skywalker's journey. I found his heroic character arc to be very inspiring as a young boy and still do to this day. In fact, um, this is a major tan- tangent, but I'm just going to tell it to you anyway. I'm o- I once got the f- chance to get Mark Hamill's autograph. Mark Hamill, of course, being the actor who played Luke Skywalker. And I was standing in line. And I had, you know, the picture that I was going to ask him to autograph. And I gave it to him when it was my turn. And, you know, he's just been signing things left and right. He's not really that, you know, one-on-one with each person. But I did say something to the effect of, hey, I just wanted to let you know that you were my hero since I've been young. And thank you so much for what you did. And he's like very polite. and like, oh, thank you. And then I said, I know you probably hear that a lot. But he said... Yeah, but it really does mean a lot. And then he handed me my autographed image and I walked away and actually started tearing up because I just met my hero and he had told me that something I told him meant a lot. And so there are these stories that even though they might be the the more popular, less, you know, less for lack of a better word, deep story, I think they, they can change the world. And you know, Dave here is talking to us about million dollar outlines. He wants us to create those kind of stories. So what he talks about is that the the stories that do the these things most effectively do all three of these things, the endings that are the most effective will leave you changed. The character will be changed and the character will have effected change. And he gives a couple of examples of good ones here. He mentions the Christmas Carol, which very much, I think, shows this that Scrooge changes he changes other people and i think we're all changed with the story that he has he also gives it's a wonderful life as a good example the the film and i agree with that one too that's another film that can get me to tear up every time i watch it and he mentions some others like lord of the rings and um for me personally i would add add star wars to that but i would just encourage you guys and you can do this over at our facebook group which is titled the same as this podcast And we'll have a link in the show notes as well. I would encourage you to tell us what is a story that has changed your life, right? For for me, it was Star Wars. And and there have been others, of course. But what is a story that made you want to be a writer, that made you really care about this whole storytelling thing? 
I'd really love to hear your thoughts on that. So go ahead and visit us at the Facebook group. Let us know. Just just shout it out into the discussion and I'll see it and, and comment on it. And we have uh, several people, a lot of people there already. So feel free to do that. I look forward to seeing your responses. That is it for this week. Next week, we will be tackling the section called Writing a Million Dollar Outline. It is a longer section than most of the the little sections that we've covered so far. So that is all we're going to be tackling is just that one section, writing a million dollar outline, which takes us almost to the end of the book. There's some appendices and stuff after that that we might get to in the week following. But we're going to tackle that next week. I look forward to talking to you then. Thank you for joining us on The Author's Journey. Join us next time as we continue our exploration of great books on craft. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.